Do you have a favorite procedure to perform? Facelift. Yeah. How come? I think they tend to be the happiest patients afterwards. Most facelift patients just want to look refreshed. They want to just look natural. And that's very much my aesthetic preference. And the technically, the procedure is very fun for me. Hmm. Oh, I am so excited about our guest today. Today we have Dr. Lauren Umstead. She is a board-certified physician specializing in facial plastic surgery. She's always been drawn to aesthetic medicine with an artistic eye and astute attention to detail. She's native to Kansas City and completed a large portion of her training at the University of Missouri in the Midwest and is now one of only a small handful of female facial plastic surgeons. She has over 100,000 followers on TikTok where she educates on all things facial plastic surgery. She is a wife, mother, and true advocate for women and almost a year ago opened the doors to her own private practice, Face the Wood. Lauren, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me, Rachel. I love meeting other women in the community. And yeah, I just I'm excited to chat today. Yeah, me too. Me too. So tell me about your journey to opening your private practice. What was that process like? And how long has it been a dream of yours? Yeah, I all the, all so the juicy details I think on most that. people that work in healthcare eventually kind of see how the decisions are made. A lot of the healthcare decisions that are made are made by administrators and insurance companies, unfortunately, because I think that's to the detriment of both the patient and the provider. Um, and so I would say very early on in my medical training, I was like, wow, I didn't realize that there's not a lot of autonomy when it comes to taking care of your patients. So maybe I want to eventually work for myself, but I had no clue how that works and like how you actually pay your bills and all of that stuff. Um, so early on, I just kind of was like, oh, this is interesting. I just didn't know how all this worked. Focused on my medical training, surgical training. And during my undergraduate medical school and residency training, decided that I really loved cosmetic surgery. Um, I just love like the patients, connecting with them. You know, it's a high proportion of females, which I love chatting with women all day, getting to know them. Um, I think as a female myself, there's just kind of a different vibe or different relationship versus when I've seen some of my male colleagues and mentors connect with women during this whole journey of like getting a procedure done. And so the idea that I could potentially do cosmetics and charge whatever I want, you know, it's not insurance based, made it possible for me to say like, wow, I guess I could just like go out on my own. Um, and so I'd say the process really started materializing my fourth year of residency. It's a five-year residency. And so at that point, I was like, okay, I love cosmetics. I'm going to eventually do a fellowship in that. So I still have like two years in front of me before I'm done with all my training. So let's start doing some research. Um, I grew up in Kansas City, and my husband is from a small town near Kansas City, so Kansas City always made sense to us. And so I started doing a little bit of research, talking to people in the community, kind of putting my feelers out there. It's really common for people to join an older surgeon and then eventually buy their practice. And so that's kind of the route I 
thought I was going to take. I, you know, met with people. There was one person in particular that I talked to about like joining slash buying their practice and it just didn't like feel right. He wanted a lot for what I felt like I was getting and I was like, I just don't think this is the best investment. And so my husband at the time was like, well, why don't you just start your own like from scratch? And I was like, wow, that seems really intimidating. Like, how do you even get your first patient? Like, how does that even work? You just like open your doors and hope people start calling your phone number. Um, but he was like, you know, we, we can make it work. Like, I think we'll just, you know, educate ourselves in terms of marketing and like we can make it happen. If that's what you ultimately want to do, that's what we should do. And so I was like, okay. So from that point forward, it was like, okay, I'm going to open my own business right out of fellowship. And so it took about two full years for us to decide that we wanted to purchase land and build a building versus, you know, get a building and renovate it. Um, so land purchase, meeting with architects, designing the building, building the building. Um, this whole time I'm in a different state doing my fellowship training. And so that's a logistical challenge. Um, and then here we are today. And Honestly, the best decision I made, which was very intimidating at the time, was to document the entire process. And I didn't I didn't realize how valuable that would be, you know, when I was doing it. But in retrospect, that's what gained people's interest and trust. And I was nervous. I was like, wow, if I show people I'm right out of training and I'm brand new, they're not going to want to come to me because I'm brand new. But actually on the flip side, documenting the whole process about like designing the building and the construction and all of that, it allowed me to reach people in a very different way than most people see physicians. And so I think there's a lot of trust that goes into certain industries, you know, like you, like real estate, like you really have to trust your agent to do the right thing for you because it's a very niche thing that most people don't, they're not buying houses every day. Um, and same with me, like there's a lot of trust, like people don't quite understand how Botox works or what they're going to look like after a facelift or, and so, um, the fact that I documented it, put it out there, do a lot of education during my videos. Now, I think people just have a sense of trust with our team, which is something that you really, you can't get any other way. Mm -hmm. I think it goes a long ways in kind of eating into the stigma around plastic surgery, that you make it so accessible and transparent, especially being here in the Midwest. You know, choosing to be in Kansas City where we're always 10 years behind the coasts on all the trends, how, how has that been for you? And has being really transparent online, you think, helped people come in to see you that maybe wouldn't just go see a random plastic surgeon that they have no you know knowledge of? Yeah, I mean, whenever I turn on my camera and try to make a video about something, I always try to think back to like, what are the most common questions people ask? What are questions that people don't want to ask or they're embarrassed to ask? Like, how can I demystify what I do every day and how can I bring value to people? I think the spread in coast versus Midwest, I think all of that is the range and the time and all that, I think it's shortening um, because of social media and the internet. And we're all so connected these days. Like there's less of a, 
a delay or a trickle of things into the Midwest, I would say, from the coast. It's at least my perception. Do you find people come in and want to like their procedures to be secretive or are people very open with their loved ones about what they're doing? You know, do you, do they, do you really have those conversations with patients? It varies widely. Okay. And um, I have patients who don't want me to send any mail to their house and they pay in all cash because they don't want the receipt. Um, and then I have patients that come with their husband and they both get stuff done at the same time. So it varies widely. And I highly, highly, highly value the privacy and confidentiality of every single patient. Um, all the stuff online that you guys see those are people who've given me explicit permission to post online. And so there are tons of people who say, no, thanks. I want to keep my treatment private. Um, and that is totally fine. That's up to them. Mm -hmm. So I recently had a breast reduction surgery done and it was nothing short of life changing. Like I can't sing the praises of it enough. And I'm someone that probably in the past would been like, oh, I would never do plastic surgery, you know. But having experienced how much it can change your life, like I can't imagine how fun that is for you to see people walk in as one person and out with like literally a way off, you know, like so much more confidence and like, you know, whatever's been bothering them for years suddenly is taken care of. Like how rewarding is that for you to like see patients before and then see them again after and how much these procedures could change their life? Yeah, it's it's hard to put into words how rewarding my job is every day. Um, we recently had an event uh, and several of my surgery patients were here who have healed from various procedures and I just felt so lucky like they feel like they're part of my family really? like when I see them and they're happy and they're healed and they look great and yeah it's it's so it, I just I can't even put into words but you're right it is it's and I tell people really all this stuff is a very emotional um process especially when I'm doing um facial surgery on people. I, I actually have a little handout that I give people prior to surgery saying that this is going to be an emotional roller coaster. You know, they did a study years ago showing that the rate of acute depression after facelifts is almost 100%, which is really surprising to people. And I tell patients that it is very, very, very normal to have a little dip emotionally after surgery because it's totally unknown to you you're looking in the mirror you look horrible for a while you know you're swollen you're bruised you can see your incisions you've got lumpy bumpies all over you know one cheek maybe more swollen than the other cheek and so a lot of people have this like regret and guilt and like blues period before they bounce back and so for whatever reason it seems to be way more common with face surgery. I don't know if you had any emotional after your breast surgery. Um, but I'd say that's the biggest thing that people don't anticipate. And so it's, it's wonderful to have a team here where this is like literally all we do. And the nurses are so great at just like reassuring the patients. This is normal. It's gonna, you're going to feel better. Just give us time because it takes time to heal. Yeah. With, with the breast reduction, it's like instant gratification because you walk out and you're smaller and no one can see the bruising and all that. So it's a, a little less intensely emotional because like your wounds are not right in someone's face, like a facial surgery would be, I think. But 
Um, another thing that I thought was interesting is as I was researching you is you have your prices just displayed right on your website. <clears throat> and when I was researching my breast reduction, I was like, can someone give me a straight answer of how much this will cost? You know, you have to go jump through so many hoops and then they'll like email you a little PDF and it's like all secretive. And I'm like, I, what, can I just, it's so crazy to me. So I, it seems like that's really unique that you have that just right out there for anyone to see. What's your strategy behind that? Is it just the transparency thing again? Yes. I don't know why more people don't put their prices online. I think it's really stupid. Um, for like, and for our team, like it just makes it so much easier. I, I almost liken it to buying a new car. Like when you go to start looking at a new car, cause that's a big decision, you know, you put in your price range and you wouldn't even show up at the Mercedes dealership if you didn't already at least have a ballpark figure in your mind about what this car is going to cost and is it within my budget. And so I think it's very weird that some practices you have to like go in for a consultation and pay a fee to talk to the surgeon when they won't even give you the price of the procedure. When insurance in is involved, I get it's totally complicated. But for cash cosmetic pricing... It makes my job easier because people already know what the price is before they come in. So when we talk about their at their consultation, when we talk about all the details of the procedure and everything, they're not worried about the price the whole time. They're actually able to like engage in the discussion and ask me good questions. And they're not like on the edge of their seat waiting for the very end of the consultation where I like hand them a quote. Um, and it also cuts down on um, like the staff's work you know they don't get like tons of phone calls every day it's like the people that reach out for surgery consults have usually already seen the pricing and so it, it makes it just easier for us and easier for the patient i i don't know why more people don't do that to be honest beats me beats me it was very frustrating so you are so transparent online and plastic surgery is such a unique field what do you get a lot of like hate on the internet for what you're posting your educational pieces does it bother you how do you kind of handle that I do get hate and it do it does bother me but so I was a gym I was a gymnast for years and you get yelled at by your coaches and it's a very nitpicky sport so that's in my favor I was a surgery resident for five years and a fellow for one year so that is not the most like loving environment either and so I just have this like mental picture where I just like put on my raincoat and like all those negative comments just hit the raincoat and, and run off. Like, you know, to a certain point, you just can't read them or pay attention to them because it makes you feel bad. And for me, posting stuff online is the number one driver of people in my door. So it's not like I'm going to stop posting, right? Because it's growing my business. That's like my number one marketing tool. So for me, the stakes are too high. I just have to say, you know what? I'm not going to care about these stupid, mean comments. I try to tell myself that that person is hurting for some reason and they're taking it out on me as a stranger on the internet. Uh, so I, I try not to get my feelings hurt too much, but I think at the end of the day, we're all still human and we have insecurities. And so when people comment on those little things, it does hurt. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you feel a little like mama bear towards your patients and the women that are choosing to have these procedures. You know, the people that are hating on the procedures itself has to even be hard for you, even if it's nothing personal, right? <laughs> yeah. 
again, I I do, I'm very engaged in social media. So I read almost all the comments that I get, but the negative ones, I just try to instantly just don't even engage in them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite procedure to perform? Facelift. Yeah. How come? I think they tend to be the happiest patients afterwards. Um, you know, most facelift patients just want to look refreshed. They don't want to look different. They still want to look like themselves. They just want to look like they've not aged as much as they feel like they have when they look in the mirror. Um, people don't want this like weird look. They want to just look natural. And that's very much my aesthetic preference. Um, I do, I do want to hear people's wants and needs and somewhat I'm able to tailor their treatment and results based on what they want. But I also have to draw a line if somebody comes in requesting something very odd or distorting, you know, that's the gray zone in cosmetics. And so in those scenarios, you tell people like, you know, I just don't think I'm the right doctor for you. Um, but facelift patients tend to be the happiest, the most realistic, um, and the technically the procedure is very fun for me. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, do you think, or is there a lot of research behind like age, the age of your facial skin? Is it more genetics or more skincare or lifestyle? Like what, co you know, which, which of those things impacts it the most do you think? Oh, all of the above. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, genetics plays a huge component in people's aging, but you also can't discount all the environmental stuff. Um, the sun is like the number one ager of all of us. Like you can't find me outside without a hat on. Um, and I wear sunscreen every day and I try to convince my patients to as well. Um, but then lifestyle wise, you know, I mean, like getting good sleep is so important, you know, really prioritizing, like having good sleep hygiene and getting a decent amount of sleep every day. Obviously your diet and hydration, I think over the last 20 years, we've started to recognize that your diet has a huge impact on your physical health. Um, so it's, I mean, it's all the basic stuff. Uh, there's no like magic elixir or pill that you can take. It's, you know, part of it's the cards you're dealt in terms of genetics. And then the other part is just making smart decisions to help prevent you from aging prematurely by staying out of the sun, not smoking, getting enough sleep and eating a fairly balanced diet. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have patients come in that are like of a certain age where you're like, well, your skin does look older, but that is your age. So, you know, like, is there ever a balance where you're like more almost just helping them accept their skin where it is versus doing a procedure or is there always an option to make them feel more comfortable in their skin? I think there's always an option to improve on things. I think the hardest part about my job is setting realistic expectations for patients. And so with some of the treatments we offer, like let's take microneedling, for example, that's a procedure where we poke like thousands of little holes all over the skin of the face and the neck. And it tells your body like, hey, there's an injury here, produce some collagen and elastin to heal the area. And so in turn, you get an aesthetic benefit. But so the, it's a pretty easy treatment. The downtime is fairly minimal. But the flip side is that one treatment is not going to dramatically change somebody's skin texture, color, pigment, all that. 
you kind of have to do a few treatments. I tell people it's like diet and exercise for the skin. The more, the better. And so when patients come in with a really aged appearance and they're finally ready to start focusing on themselves or investing in their own appearance, I say it's kind of a marathon. You know, we can't, there's not just like one treatment that you can do because this is like 60 years worth of aging, you know. So, but there, there's always things we can do. And as simple as just starting some quality skincare uh, to doing some stuff in clinic like Botox or microneedling all the way up to doing a seven-hour full-face surgery. Yeah. Do you have a recommended age for when people should start doing preventative Botox or microneedling? Whenever it bothers them. Okay. So not yeah, necessarily no if your skin feels great and nothing's bothering you. There's no need to start it yet. Yeah. I mean, it's an investment, time, money. There's risks to everything I do. And so I tell patients the right time to do anything is when it bothers you. And so it's rare, but occasionally we'll have like a really, really young patient who can't even make a line in their forehead when they try. And so I say, well, I, I could do a little bit of Botox preventatively, but you can't even hardly make a line in your forehead. And so when you come back in a couple of weeks for your follow-up, your before and after photos are going to look identical. Like I can, I can do the Botox, but I just don't think it's even worth your money right now. I would just save your money and come back in five, six years. Mm -hmm. Just invest in sunscreen and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Invest in sunscreen, start making you know, quality lifestyle choices, which, you know, our frontal lobe, what still developing into your twenties. So oftentimes, you know, mid twenties is probably where people start to think about things in the future and aging. And, you know, prior to that, we just live in the moment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what is the future of face? Do, are you hoping to grow and expand? Are you really happy with where you're at? You know, as you're kind of approaching your one year anniversary, how, what are you thinking for your practice? Well, I have a lot of goals. I'm a very driven type A person. And so, yes, I see tons of growth in our future, um, both from a staff standpoint and a patient-based standpoint. But I also think one of the beauties of our practice is that we take so much time with every patient and really try to get to know them and understand their goals. And so forever, and always for face, I always want it to be slow and easy for patients. I don't ever want to get to the point where we feel like we're just racing through the day. Um, and so why we grow, I think slow but real growth is my goal. You, I think there's some downside to almost growing too fast for certain small businesses. And so um, we're kind of right at that that cusp right now, we have three full-time employees, um, one contracted employee. We're bringing on another employee next week. Um, my schedule is pretty much full, like for the next, well, clinic-wise for the next two weeks and then surgically for the next like eight weeks, we're totally booked. So I, I feel so fortunate that we've already gotten this busy and it's only been like 10 months. Um, I like pinch myself. And I, so I think I can see today and I can see tomorrow and I can see 10 years down the road. It's the next few years and how that growth is going to play out. That's the hard part. 
for me, but I never want to do too much or too fast. I just, for me, quality patient care is always first and foremost. And then after that, you know, protecting my staff and educating them and treating them well, that's super, super important to me because my staff arguably spends way more time with my patients than I do. And so I want to have a really positive work environment for them. I just got like full body chills when you were talking about how like you guys have done so well so far. Like seeing other women thrive in their dream is like the, ah, it just, I could like run around, lap around the block right now. Like I'm so happy for you. It's so awesome. I love it. Um, Okay. So you're also a mother, right? Tell me about the work-life balance. How is that? How do you juggle it? Do you have a mat? Tell me, tell me your tricks. I have a little one too. How do you do it? <laughs> How old is your little one? She just turned three in March. Oh my gosh. Okay. That's when they start getting like more fun, I think. Okay. Phew. <laughs> What's her name? Her name is Reese. You know, this it's so hard when they're little and like, it's just, yeah. you're in the weeds of it. So how, do you have older kids then? All right. Well, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Okay. Oh, you're right in the thick of it too then, huh? <laughs> Yeah, I have no secrets or tips or tricks or anything for the work-life balance. There is no balance. I feel, you know, what does people say? Like, you feel guilty when you're at work and you feel guilty when you're home. Um, arguably, now my life is way more controllable and I spend more time at home than when I was, like, in residency. Um, that was, like, super challenging. But I have a wonderful husband and he... I mean, it's truly a partnership. He's so good with our kids. He's able to, you know, pick up loose ends whenever like daycare calls and somebody has a fever and has to go home or somebody's out of school one day for teacher work day. Um, so there's no way I could do all this without my husband. But I think, you know, I have a lot of like younger women that that ask like, well, when should I have kids? Like, when's the right time? And I'm like, the right time is when you and your partner feel ready to take on that next step. I think professionally, like you never feel like it's a good time, right? I mean, pregnancy's hard, delivery's hard, postpartum's hard. And then after you get through all the hard stuff, you've got this like human being that you love literally more than you can even describe. And you feel guilty going to work, but then being at home with him all the time is also like, real, would not be for me. I have so much respect for the parents that stay home with their kids. There's, it's a thankless job and it's probably one of the hardest out there. But um, I think for me, just trying to be present in the moment as much as I can is what I try to do, but I'm, I'm still not good at that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Last question for you. I ask everyone that comes on the podcast what is a great meal you've had in Kansas City recently? You went out to a restaurant, had a great dinner, and you're like, man, everyone has to try this. Okay, Bamboo Pennies, the lobster pad thai. Ooh, that sounds amazing. I have had so much stuff on their menu. It's my favorite restaurant in Kansas City. It's at Park Place in Leewood. It's the bomb. Oh, that sounds awesome. I'll have to add that to my list for sure. Well, Lauren, thank you for your time. Thank you for all you do to help empower women in the Metro and best of luck to you and face as you guys move forward. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining us today. If we haven't already, let's connect. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Pinterest, LinkedIn, and TikTok at Rach the Realtor KC.
We're back right here every Thursday morning with a new guest on Connecting KC. See you next time.